Um, we are going to jump into um, the scripture and into a moment of prayer, and we get to open up John chapter 3 today, which has one of the most famous verses of all time, but we're going to set it in context and hopefully see it in a whole new light. So let's read the scripture. We are going to begin in John chapter 3, verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the gift of your word today. Thank you for the gift of what today is. Another day to breathe, another day to be alive, to experience the wonder of your grace, that we are here, that we exist, and that you are good. But Father, it's also Mother's Day, um, and that is an incredible thing to celebrate, the gift, the beauty of motherhood. And so we want to thank you for the gift of mothers, the sacrifice, the suffering, the joy, the ache, the beauty of it all. So, Father, we thank you for the gift of the mothers that you have given us. Um, we celebrate, but, Father, I also want to lift up those to you uh, today who, um, whose heart aches and grieves because um, of the loss in their life. Their mother is no longer with them or the pain um, and the ache of a miscarriage, of losing a child, pain and the ache of an adoption that did not go through, of a foster care situation that is just hard. Um, Father, you tend to us um, in these aches and these griefs. Um, and they ache and they are a grief because motherhood is such a beautiful thing and children are such a gift from the Lord. So would you, in your mighty presence, be with all those who are here today and bring comfort um, and let joy rise in our souls because of how, how gracious and good you are to us. And Lord, um, before I begin the sermon, uh, Lord, would you help me to honor your word and honor my brothers and sisters who are here today? Help me to serve your word well to be faithful um, to the truth of what you speak and help me to serve my brothers and sisters. And may I point to Christ by the power of the Spirit. And it's in the name of Christ that I pray. Amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever wanted to change? <laughs> Have you ever wanted to be something different than you are? Have you ever wanted to be someone different than you are? Have you ever wanted to not think the way you think about something? To not feel the way you feel about something? To not do the things that you do? Or have you ever desired to have a whole new set of desires only to come up against the obstacle of you? Right? Only to come up against the obstacle of the tyranny of the self. Now I would venture a guess that we have all thought about these things and wanted to change and wanted to be different in some way or another. And so 
to be human, to be who we are, but to truly change, like to truly change, to change at a deep level. How is it that we change? How is it that we change? How do we become more than who we are? How does deep change happen? How do we get unstuck, as, as it were? Well, the answer to these questions comes amidst the conversation that took place in the dark of a Jerusalem night a long, long time ago. And today, Jesus is going to teach us how true change is actually possible. Now, our text today, I think, is incredibly fitting for Mother's Day, for it's about the glory of birth, um, the suffering and the joy that comes along with birth. Jesus teaches us about being born again. So that's what we're going to talk about today, being born again. Now, this sermon is going to move in four acts, four movements, to follow the four movements of the text. We're going to set this incredibly well-known verse within its context. So we're going to do a little bit of work, and I'm going to uh, try to tell the story well to carry us along so we see how this whole thing fits together. But there's going to be four key words that are going to help us understand the flow of this passage, okay? Four key words, who, what, how, and why. Okay, who, what, how, and why. So who must be born again? What in the world is being born again? How can one be born again? And why is anyone born again? Okay, so those are um, our our, our key pieces. Those are the four acts, the four movements that we're going to go through. Who, what, how, and why. Hope that helps you. It's helped me this week. Who, what, how, and why. So Let's do this. With that map in our heads, let's take a stroll on a warm night through the streets of Jerusalem and do a little eavesdropping, an eavesdrop in on one of the most incredible conversations that this world has ever heard. So, John, we'll begin chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, which might seem odd at first, but it'll make sense why. John, chapter 2, starting at verse 23. Now, when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, That's the springtime, Easter time. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, all the miracles that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Man, man, that word just pops up all over the place, humanity, anthropos. He knows human nature. He knows what's inside of the human heart. He knew the human heart. And so this bit sets the context for what is about to ensue. It's important because he's, he's going to show us in this conversation his anthropology, what Jesus thinks of human nature, how human nature is, what human nature should be. Okay, so a little bit of anthropology by Jesus here. So let's listen to the story unfold. Now on to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now there was a man, Anthropos, that links right to the passage before. Jesus knows what's in human beings. He knows what's in the human heart. He knows what's in mankind. Now there was a man who approaches him. Jesus knows the nature of Nicodemus. He knows what he is. He knows what he needs to be. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, that's the rulers of Jerusalem, know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like sometimes you just have to wonder, like, did Jesus even hear the person in front of him? Like, because sometimes he just like changes course and, and, and says something that's like a non sequitur. Like, how did we get here? So a couple things here. First, let's talk about Nick, okay? Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is a, a devout religious man, full of disciplined observance for his faith. He's part of a group called the Pharisees. That word means the separated ones. They're separated from those who are living in worldly ways because they want to honor God and they want to bring other people into this way of life to follow the law of God. Now they often get a bad rap and for good reason as you read through the New Testament. But what they're trying to do is to follow the law of God and they want other people to do likewise. So this Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's also a ruler of the Jews which means he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a council. It was, it was an assembly of, of 70 men that oversaw all of Israel. So it's the Supreme Court of Israel, okay? So when you think of Sanhedrin, think of the Supreme Court of Israel. They make all sorts of laws, do all sorts of things to oversee the land. So he's not only a Pharisee, he's a special Pharisee who is a part of the Supreme Court of Israel. And then Jesus is going to call him the teacher of Israel, like, he's prominent, he's, he's well-known, he's top of the class. So what this means is that, that Nick is a respected, educated, wealthy elite who holds a power position, okay? He is a wealthy, respected elite who's highly educated, and he holds a power position. So if anyone has their stuff together, if anyone has it all together, if anyone is on the right track heading towards the kingdom of God, it's this guy, he has all the commonly held reasons to believe that he is right with God. He, he's like, his pedigree is just super impressive. This guy should be the one who's telling other people about the kingdom of God. Yet Jesus says, you need to be born again. Okay, you need to be born again. Nicodemus needs Jesus to save him. And this is, this is really important for us to understand. Even the most religious, even the most moral person needs Jesus to save them. Everyone needs Jesus to save them. Right? No one is good on their own. We cannot climb that stairway to heaven as we talked about last week. So in our story, the model leader, and this model Israelite, he comes to Jesus by night. And I don't know why. I mean, I can, I can make guesses for his motivation. Maybe it's to hide his meeting with this young controversial rabbi. Maybe he doesn't want it to be publicly known that he's meeting with him. Maybe. Maybe it's because in the evening that's when people got together to talk about the scriptures because it was cooler than the heat of the day and so it was common to get together and talk about the law at night. Or maybe because it was the only time slot that Jesus had because his calendar was quite loaded that day. I, you know, I don't know. But one thing that's for sure is Nick is in the dark when he begins to talk to Jesus even though he thinks he understands what in the world is going on. And in short, he was the most likely candidate to be accepted in the kingdom of God. He's devout. He's the religious insider. And surprisingly, Jesus tells the teacher of Judaism here that he is on the outside. So let's note, though, how this conversation begins, right? Nicodemus comes. He begins with a statement of knowledge, of authority, of making his position an assessment of the things regarding God known what is and what isn't. 
He says, we have figured this out. No one can or can't, right? He's making these statements. And Jesus wastes no time. He cuts right to the heart of the matter. He goes straight to it. He interrupts Nicodemus. And he goes right to the heart of the problem. Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. Now, think about that. Those words are radical, born again, right? Born. Not so radical, right? Everyone, anyone in here born? Thank you. Okay, we're all, all born. That's just like normal. Okay, we're all born. But you add the word again to born, and now suddenly you're in the realm of, of the mystical or the supernatural, something wonderful. We're all born. We know how it happens. How does somebody get born again? What does Jesus mean? Well, it means that Jesus has a really solid anthropology. He knows what we're like, and he knows what we need to be, and he knows we are not as we need to be. And in fact, Jesus' anthropology indicts the whole human race. There is none righteous, no, not one, as Isaiah 53 says, as Romans 3 says. So what is needed is the most radical change possible. Okay, the most radical change possible. Synapses aren't enough. Having the right thoughts about God aren't enough. We need the supernatural to invade. We don't need to just know something new. We don't need to just do something new. We need to become something new. So here's our first question. Who? Who? Who must be born again? Everyone. Okay? Simple answer. Who must be born again? Absolutely everyone. No one is born a Christian. I mean, you might be born into a Christian home. You might be born into a pew, so to speak, because you're just part of the Christian tradition. But it doesn't matter if you are raised in a Christian home or if you even come to faith early, right? You are not born as a follower of Christ. You are born and then have to be born again. Every Christian has a two-part story. Every Christian has a two-part story. Part one, part A, I was born. I was a mess, right? Part two, right? Part B, I was reborn. He saved me, and I'm still messy, but he's working on me, right? Every Christian has a two-part story. Now, let's pick up at verse four. Nicodemus said to him, what? Like, how, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly. That's him saying, pay attention, listen up, this is key. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Then he keeps talking in this cryptic language. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. All right, what is going on? Well, Jesus uses this word um, for being born again. It's a Greek word. It's the, the word anothen, okay? Anothen. And it doesn't only mean to be, um, do something again. It doesn't just mean again. It also means from above. So when Jesus says you have to be born again, he doesn't just mean you need to be renewed. He says you need to be renewed from above. Again and from above. That's what the word literally means in the Greek. Again and from above. And Nicodemus goes again and from above. How in the world does this happen? And it's interesting, if you were to take out a pencil and circle every time Nicodemus uses the word can, somebody cannot do this, or how can this happen? How can, it's, it's in here at least four times. I counted it four times. 
He is so concerned about what we can or cannot do, and Jesus keeps taking his eyes and turning them back to what God can do, okay? Nicodemus says, so you're telling me somebody has to be born again. How can somebody go back into the womb, go back to the maternity ward and come back out? Now, quick word on this. Um, Often Nicodemus is just painted as stupid. Is he stupid? Does he have a low IQ? No way, shape, or form. In fact, he's doing something that rabbis would often do. This is a rabbinic move. It would be to take an argument that you're not quite understanding, that you're not gelling with, push it to its logical extent to see how possible or impossible it is. So he's like, you're telling me I have to be born again? That means we're given a new nature when we're born, but we need a new nature. How do we do that? Are you telling me I have to go back into my mother's womb? He's not just being crass or dumb. He's doing a rabbinical move to say, is this really true? He's pressing on this truth claim that Jesus is putting forward. So how do we get this new nature? And Jesus, he's so good. Um, He speaks Nicodemus's language. He speaks his language. He's about to tell him, no, no, Nicodemus, history does not have to be reversed. We don't have to go back in time, but humanity has to be remade as we move forward. Jesus shows him this truth by pointing to what Nicodemus knows well. What's Nicodemus's wheelhouse? What is he really good at? The law. He's a student of the scriptures. He knows the Bible. He speaks in Bible. That's what he does Daily, so Jesus is about, is about to speak Bible to Nicodemus, and he knows Nicodemus is going to pick up on the words that he says, which is why Jesus starts saying things like water and spirit and kingdom. It's why he says words like wind and the sound and the spirit, because Jesus is now referring to some Old Testament passages that Nicodemus knows. Jesus is about to teach the gospel through the scriptures that point to him. So good. He turns us to the book of Ezekiel. He turns the mind of Nicodemus to the book of Ezekiel. So let me read you a passage. This is Ezekiel chapter 36. Uh, context really quickly. Ezekiel is a prophet. God spoke to this prophet to speak to the people, to tell the people how he was going to restore and renew everything. Okay? God is going to restore and re- remake and renew his people. And here's what we get. Let's uh, pick up at verse um, 25. He says, I, that's God, I will sprinkle clean water on you, okay? Water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new what? Spirit I will put within you, water and spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I, 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 I. Who's the active agent in there? God. God will save his people from their own stony, dead hearts. God will give his people new hearts. This is the promise of the divine heart transplant that we all need, that the Messiah will bring about. Now, not only that, Jesus then refers to the next chapter, which is Ezekiel 37. Because then Jesus goes on and says, you know, the wind blows as it does. And Nicodemus' mind is tracking with 36 and now 37. Because in chapter 37, there's this, there's this vision of the valley of dry bones. And God tells the prophet Ezekiel, 
that the people are like a valley of dry bones. They're all dead. They're all broken apart in pieces. They're spiritually dead. But then this weird thing happens in the vision. The wind comes into this valley. And all these bones clatter together and sinews and flesh and muscle are put back on them. And then the breath of God is put in them as the word of God speaks. God speaks and breathes and humanity comes alive, right? That's Ezekiel 37. So you can kind of see the breakdown there of what Jesus says and then Ezekiel. See, these guys are talking Bible back and forth. Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus of how this whole thing is going to happen. The wind, you don't see it, but you hear it, its effect. You're going to hear those bones clatter together. You're going to hear people come alive, and you're going to hear people praising the Lord. Okay, so with all this, what in the world is being born again? We talked about who needs to be born again. Who needs to be born again? Everyone. What is being born again? Well, being born again is to be given a new heart by the Spirit of God. Being born again is to be given a new heart by the Spirit of God. Do you know how radical this is? This is so opposite of a claim of of any other religion that says you do, you work, you try, you excel, then you're accepted. Christianity is so dark in one sense that says you have no hope, you can't save yourself. But it's so brilliant and full of light that says, but God is breathing his life into you and drawing you into his very relationship with himself. And now you have the spirit of God living within you. You're a miracle. A Christian is a miracle, not just somebody who has a new moral structure because they heard a teaching. The very breath of heaven is within their flesh. That is the radical nature of Christianity. That is what we are drawn into. So what is being born again? To be given a new heart by the Spirit of God. This is called the doctrine of regeneration. Doctrine means teaching. Regeneration means to be born again. We don't talk nearly enough about it in the Western world at all. Okay, to be given a new heart by the Spirit of God. Jesus now explains the what. Uh, and, and then Nicodemus goes, yeah, but how? Like, how? So Jesus preaches from the Old Testament, says, here's what it is. And then Nicodemus goes, how? How is this going to happen? Well, let's continue. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? His categories are just exploding all over the place. So Jesus answered him, Seriously? Like, are you the teacher of Israel? Are you the teacher of Israel? Yet you do not understand these things. See, if he's the teacher, he knows the scriptures. And the scriptures clearly say you have to be cleansed with, with, with the water from God. And then you have to be breathed alive by the Spirit of God. These are the promises of Ezekiel, teacher. Don't you know the word? Yahweh promised this. This is what needs to happen. So bewildered, Nicodemus then asked, well, how, how can these things be? In other words, what's going to make this come about? And then Jesus goes into it in verse 11. Truly, truly, listen up. I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. In other words, Jesus is saying, we, uh, me, the, the, the Holy Spirit that is speaking through me to you because of what I've seen the Father tell me, We're telling you these things, but you're not picking up on it. You're not seeing what's going on. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he says this, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
What does that mean? Well, Jesus, let me put it this way. Jesus says, Nicodemus, trust me. I can talk about these things. I can authoritatively talk about the kingdom of heaven and what it means to be born again. Do you know why? Because I'm from heaven. I have come down from the Father. I've seen the kingdom. I bring the kingdom. I know the kingdom. I know what's in your heart. I know what's coming. You can trust me because I have come down from heaven. And then he says, so trust what I'm about to say because I'm going to preach the gospel to you from the Old Testament, Nicodemus. You ready? Here's what he says. Verse 14. Here's his mini-sermon. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In my brain, in my imagination, at this point, Nicodemus is just like, give me a moment, <laughs> let me process this. Jesus just dropped this incredible Old Testament gospel bomb on him. It's a little bit weird. Jesus is like, hey, remember that snake that was put up on the pole? You know in that story that you all know because it's from the Exodus story and all the, the Jewish kids know the Exodus story. Remember that? That's what I'm like. And that's what's going to happen. And that's how you get born again. Weird, right? What is he talking about? Well, let, let's, let's clear this up because we're not all familiar with this story. A lot of us can quote John 3.16, but we've never read Numbers 21. So here's what Numbers 21 says. It's worth the read. It won't take too long. So go back, rewind in the story, go to the fourth book from the cover of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. I'll have it up on the screen for you here. Um, context, the, the people of God have been um, taken out of Egypt. They've been taken out of slavery. God has saved their bacon over and over and over again, kosher bacon. He saved them over and over again. They're free. He's provided for them. He's bringing them into the promised land. But their hearts are stone. From Mount Hor, which is kind of down near the Jordan area, um, the country Jordan, they set out, by the way, to the Red Sea to go around the land of, of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God. They grumbled against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? To die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wait, there's food. They just don't like it, right? He's provided for them. Well, let me get this verse. <laughs> then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Okay, I, I like to read this verse to my kids when they're grumbling about the mac and cheese we make them. <laughs> Freaks them out a little bit. The people are grumbling against God. He has done nothing but shower them with grace. Their hearts are so stony hard. Their, their chests are a valley of bones. They can't see the goodness of God. So God sends judgment. Verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. <laughs> Help! Right? We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, a serpent made of, of bronze. Set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay. That's weird. If you're new to the Bible, that's weird. If you read the Bible a hundred times, that can still seem weird. What in the world is going on? The people do something wicked. They don't trust God. This is called sin, right? And there is a curse that comes because they don't trust God. And then they eventually say, help me. And Moses is given this weird set of divine directions to to create this bronze serpent that looks like the snakes on the ground and put it up on a pole. In other words, the curse, the thing that is killing them, that is destroying them, is to be lifted up and looked at, and that is to be their cure. And then Jesus says, (laughs) Jesus says that um, he is like that serpent and needs to be lifted up. So what's going on? Humanity has sinned. We have mistrusted God, right? And he says, here's the cure. Here's the only cure. That, that he, the Son of Man, would be lifted up and the world would look upon him and believe. So, remind me, what's on the ground biting the people? Snake. What's up on the pole that they're supposed to look at which becomes their cure and salvation? A snake. So what are they looking at? They're, they're cursed. They're, they're looking at the curse. They're looking at the thing that's destroying them. And by looking at the, the, the curse, they are now blessed with healing. Jesus has become our curse. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Jesus says, you are to look at me and to acknowledge and repent of your sin and know that I am the only way to healing, that I am the one who has stepped in the gap. And though you deserve the death, I'll take the death and give you the life that only I could live and I deserve. It's the cross. It's the great substitution. It's the great exchange. He steps into our place and gives us life, and he takes the death that we deserve. The blessed one becomes our curse that we might become the blessed ones. He's preaching the gospel from the Old Testament to him. Isn't that awesome? So, uh, how can somebody be born again? This is our third question. How can somebody be born again? Well, it's only because of the cross of Jesus. How? How can one be born again? By way of the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus has come. He's lived this glorious, glorious and beautiful and perfect life. Does not deserve what he gets Dies on the cross in our place. Rises from the dead. And then breathes his spirit into us. He has made access. He has reunited heaven and earth. That whole weird story about them in the wilderness, the reason God did it that way and told Moses to do what he did all those centuries ago because the plan all along was to have Jesus hang on a stick and be our curse so we could be blessed. The whole story from page one on is about... Jesus. It's about Jesus. Okay. Now, why? Here's the question. Why, 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 why would Jesus, the Son of God, hang on that pole like a snake, like a curse? Why would Jesus save a bunch of stony heart, grumbling, serpentine sinners? 
Why would he do it? You know the answer. Genesis 3.16. Let's go back to it and read it now, hopefully with enlightened eyes, see it in a new way. For God so loved the world. Guys, this is incredible news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So why is anybody born again? Why is the Spirit going to bring about this birth from above? Why have any of us in this room been born again? Why has heaven breathed into our, our flesh? Why is the Son of God going to be lifted up and hang as a curse on a tree? Because of the Father's love for this world. Because of the Father's love for this world. And, and maybe you've heard some theologies that said, you know, Jesus had to step in because we had a really grumpy, angry, frustrated God who just wanted to smite people. So Jesus had to step in and save us. Do you know how broken of a theology that is? It's not biblical. The Son's saving cross reveals the Father's loving heart. For God so loved the world. It is because of the love of the Father that we have the cross of the Son, that the Spirit of God might enter into us and help us to live and love like he does. The Son's saving cross reveals the Father's loving heart. This God loves the world, by the way. It's not, and God just, you know, God so loved Israel. And God so loved the world. All the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The love of God is so deeply inclusive, it is just mind-blowing. Now, this is good news. So let's do a little recap here to get this flow in us. So who needs to be born again? Everyone. What does it mean to be born again? Being given a new heart by the Spirit of God. How can one be born again? By way of the person and work of Jesus. Why is anyone born again? Because of the love of the Father. Four questions. I told you it was four acts. I'm going to add one. There's a fifth one. Fifth question. How about this? Well, that's my question. Well, what happened? What happened? John makes us wait because the story just kind of ends here. Like, how does Nicodemus respond? Like, the story stops. And you're like, John, you can't just stop the stinking story there. What happens? Because we're leaning in at this point. Jesus has just said these incredible words, and Nicodemus is like this, and we're like this, and he's like, oh, moving on. Like he's a master of tension. He knows what he's doing. He makes us wait to see if Nicodemus will look upon Jesus as the Israelites looked upon the snake on the pole. He waits to make us see if this Nicodemus, who himself is a valley of dry bones, will come to life because of the breath of God breathing on him. And what happens? What happens? Well, John makes us wait till John chapter 20. Listen to this. This is so cool. Jesus has died. His body is cold. And now he's going to be carried to his tomb. John chapter 20, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, that's John's way of saying, remember the story? Here's what happened. 
Nicodemus, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Those are the death spices to honor Jesus, to, to make sure he's buried properly. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Catch this. Nicodemus risks everything. His reputation as a teacher, his reputation, his role, his position in the Sanhedrin. He risks everything to honor Jesus as king. 75 pounds of spices. Translation, over $150,000 in modern day money. Myrrh and aloe, over 150 grand. This, uh, I don't, this is four times the spices for a normal person's burial. This is two times the spices of Gamaliel, the teacher of Israel's great burial. This is saying Nicodemus saw him as king and wanted to make sure everyone who walked by that grave smelled the fragrance of the king who went into the ground for them. God moved on the heart of Nicodemus. What will he do with us? Well, how does the story end for you? What about you? Have you ever wanted to change? To be something different than you are? To be someone different than you are? To not think the things you think? To not feel the things you feel? To not keep doing the stupid things that you're doing? To stop those grumbling, ungrateful ways? To not think those selfish, snake-like Thoughts to not do those venomous things that you do. Have you ever wanted to change those ways but only come up against the tyranny of your fallen self? In this passage, Jesus teaches us this. Let me sum it up this way. The heart of the human problem. The heart of the human problem is that we can't change the human heart, which is our problem. We need a new heart of love. That comes from heaven by way of the person and work of Jesus. So maybe you're here um, and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe someone brought you because it's, it's Mother's Day. You know, that happens, right? Um, and maybe you're honest enough in this moment to say you're stuck and you don't want to be the way you are and you want things to change. The way forward is to look and to live. Would you look at Jesus today? Would you look and live? Would you look at the very heart of God the Father hanging on the cross on your account and out of great sacrifice and love doing this most incredible thing, dying on a cross that you would live? Would you look to Jesus and live? And, and if you're a Christian we have to remember, to be a regenerated being is a miracle. You're a miracle. Like, Eric, you're a miracle. The breath of heaven is in you. Devin, you're a, you're a miracle. Audrey, you're a miracle. The, the breath of heaven lives within you. Does that shape the way we live our lives? You know, in the 1700s, I'll wrap up here, but in the 1700s, when there was the Great Awakening going up and down the coast of our country and, and then going on in England, there were two great doctrines that were being preached that were catalyzing, that the Spirit was using to bring a movement of God. 
One of those was justification by faith. We are saved by grace alone, right, through faith in Jesus Christ. And the other one was the doctrine of regeneration, that God breathes, he does a miracle and makes us completely new. So it doesn't matter how broken your family of origin is. It doesn't matter how broken and screwed up your family tree is. And Jesus, you are given a whole new origin. You are not stuck to the fate of your family's past. And it radicalized the world. Then today the gospel will be so often preached, like here it makes sense, just, you know, just say yes, and then let's move on and let's do moral things. Like no. Heaven invades us and transforms us and makes us new so we can live and love like Jesus. As a Christian, do we have a thick theology of regeneration, understanding that he has changed us and has transformed us and is changing the world through us? May it be so. Look, guys, it's Mother's Day. As every mom in here knows, does it require, let me just ask, does it require sacrifice, suffering, and love to birth a child into this world? With a hearty amen, the women say, yay. Great suffering, great sacrifice, loaded with love. That's how a child comes into this world. To be born again requires great suffering, great sacrifice. It has begun in love. It is carried through in love. And it will culminate in greater love. But that sacrifice and that love and that suffering comes through Christ. His labors have turned our curse into a blessing. Our suffering and joy in him are born again. Through love we are given a new nature and a new future. He's good, right? He's good. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. I want to thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that we are made new. We are born again because of the work of the Son. By the power of the Spirit. Born, architected, designed by the love of the Father. And Lord, we come to this table now to confess, Lord, that the old person in us is still there in muscle memory. We do, we do things that are not of you. Um, but you're working on us. Your spirit is alive and well, and you're bringing us fully to life. And so we thank you for that. So we come and we confess and we honor you um, as we eat from this table of grace. We love you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.